Jesus? I ask in my heart. It's just a simple question, meaning, what do you think about this? What do you want me to say? What are your thoughts on the matter? Slowly but surely, I've been choosing this as my first approach to any issue. If I don't intentionally and quickly ask Jesus what he thinks, I'm stunned by how fast my heart can react to a conversation or an event. In a nanosecond, I can jump to conclusions, make agreements, dismiss people. We all do this, and then we just move on. But we can be dead wrong. We might be in a bad mood. We're certainly biased. And who knows what else is influencing us on any given day? Jesus? I find myself doing that a lot these days. It allows him to speak into the moment as life is happening. It gives God a chance to be part of the process rather than my looking to him later after the damage has been done. Welcome to the Ransom Heart Podcast. I'm Alan Arnold, and we are in week four, the final week of our Walking with God podcast series. Now, each week we've been building, going a little deeper, taking you a little further into what it looks like to follow God through all seasons of life. This week, we're looking at a time of new beginnings, of recovered hope and desire. And that starts with accepting what we find hard to accept. Here's John Eldridge reading from his book, Walking with God. Accepting what I find hard to accept. It's snowing outside. Again. Jeez, friggin' Louise. We are finally into the early days of spring, and twice last week it dumped again, a total of two feet or more. I just got the driveway nice and clear, and the roads had finally dried up, and now there's another four or five inches out there. What do I do with this weather? I grew up in Southern California. We played frisbee in shorts on Christmas. The plants were green all year round. They have palm trees, for heaven's sake. I don't think I ever even owned a jacket. So this is a big-time adjustment for me. We don't really have a spring in Colorado. Winter holds on with its teeth until May. Then we get a week or two of transition, and suddenly it's summer. Now, I've always thought of myself as a pretty resilient person, willing to endure, but I am humbled to find how much the weather affects my mood, my attitude, my outlook on life. We have three days of storm and blizzard, and I've got the blues. Then the sun comes out, and I'm happy. Life is good. God is near. Jeez, I feel like a groundhog. I'm not coming out unless I see my shadow. Until the sun shines, I'm pouting in my hole. Now, here's the kindness of God. A few weeks ago, I'm flipping through a magazine, and I see an article on great places to ski. I'm about to blow past it because I don't want to ski. I want summer to come back. I'm determined to sulk until it does. Then I ran across this quote in the ad. To love winter or to love anything or anybody, you must let go and give yourself over to it. I knew it was God, because immediately I felt busted, totally busted once again. I'm not giving over. I'm pouting. I can sense God saying, yes, you are. Now stop it. 
Giving myself over to winter would be a really good thing for those who have to live with me because it isn't any fun to live with a groundhog who's moping around the house constantly griping about the weather or anything else for that matter. I remember something author Dennis Prager said, that happiness is a moral obligation. The reason we're morally obligated to be happy is because people have to live with us. If I'm chronically unhappy or even unhappy for more than a day or two, they pay for it. Would you want to live with Eeyore or Puddle Glum? What's it like for the rest of the family when I'm frumping around the house? My unhappiness casts a long shadow. It's not fair to ask them to live under that. Unhappiness is self-indulgent. It's like insisting that everyone else listen to your taste in music, and it happens to be fugues played on the organ. Okay, I hear God. I'd better make the best of this weather. Give myself over to it. We have three months of snow to go. On the things God withholds. The weather got me thinking about acceptance and surrender, which then led me to think about more significant, lingering, and long-standing disappointments in my life. I know you have yours too. What are we to make of these things? How do we walk with God in them? Now, I want to be careful here. There are many reasons for our losses and our unmet desires. The war we live in is reason enough. There is a thief with a whole army behind him, and he and his army steal, kill, and destroy like terrorists. When life isn't good, we have to be careful we don't jump to the conclusion God is withholding this from me. We jump to it too quickly, as if the only cause and effect relationship in this world is God giving or not giving things to us. Remember A plus B equals C? That's not how things work. People can withhold love and kindness, even though God commands them not to. Is it God's fault? And frankly, we sabotage a lot of God's intended joy simply by the way we approach life. And yet, having said that, there are things we are asked to live without. I have my list, and you have yours. What am I to do with the fact that despite my walk with God, my willingness to follow, and my resolve to do battle, there are things I have to live without. As I was praying about my disappointments the other day, I noticed something lingering beneath the surface. I realized that somewhere along the way, I'd come to an agreement of sorts. I need this. Not that I want it, and very much, but that I need it. It's a very subtle, and deadly shift, one that opens the door to despair and a host of other enemies. I was coming to believe that God's love and God's life are not enough. Isn't that what Adam and Eve were seduced into believing, that God was not enough? He had given them so much, but all they could see in their fateful moment of temptation was the one thing they didn't have. So they reached for it, even if it meant turning from God. What was so compelling that Adam and Eve could turn from the living God to reach for the one missing thing? I think I'm beginning to understand the answer to that question for myself. We start out longing for something, 
And the more we come to believe this is what we have to have to be happy, the more we obsess about it. The prize, just out of reach, swells far beyond its actual meaning. It begins to take on mythic proportions. We're certain life will come together once we achieve it. We think, if only I was married, if only we had children, if only I was rich, if only I had fill in the blank. Everything else in our lives pales in comparison, even God. We're falling to believe that we need whatever is just beyond our reach, and when we fall to this, we are miserable. I am not minimizing the sorrow of our disappointments. The ache is real. What I'm saying is that the ache swells beyond its nature. It dominates the landscape of our psyche when we shift from how I long for this to I need this. The only thing we truly need is God and the life he gives us. There is a satisfaction we don't want to come to until we come to it in God. Isn't this the satisfaction warned about in the parable of the rich fool who planned to tear down his barns and build bigger ones? The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there... I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. From Luke chapter 12. The warning is not about cows on the hills and cash in the mattress. The dangerous turn of the soul described here is what happens in the fellow's heart. I've arrived. Life is good. But not because he has found his life in God. There is no greater disaster for the human heart than this, to believe we have found life apart from God. And this shift that I've been describing, this coming to believe that what I don't have but long for I actually need, is the opening stages of the disaster. For whatever reason, we have come to believe that God is not enough. And so, whatever else might be the reasons for our disappointments, there is no question that God uses them to draw us to himself to wean our hearts from every other perceived source of life so that we might come to find our life in him. This may be why every one of us bears at least one major and lingering disappointment in our life. God knows what a danger it would be for us to think we've arrived. I'm remembering a scene in The Legend of Bagger Vance where Bagger says to Juna, There ain't a soul on this entire earth ain't got a burden to carry that he don't understand. It might be health or a relationship. It might be a child or the fact that they have no child. Everyone has a cross to bear. Everyone. It serves to remind us every day that we cannot make life work the way we want. We can't arrive. 
not completely, not yet. If we'll let it, the disappointment can be God's way of continually drawing us back to himself. I know that I face a choice. I can feel it down inside, and I watch it take place in my heart. I can let my disappointments define my life, or I can let them take me back to God to find my life in Him in ways I have not yet learned. The rest remains a mystery, but this is enough to know. And so I break the agreement that I've made that I need this. I renounce that agreement. I give this place in my heart back to you, God. Fill me with your love and your life in this very place. Unmet longings. There is more to say about the things we have to live without. What do we do then with these longings and these desires that go unmet? I mean, they keep presenting themselves in one way or another. I think what I do is simply bury them, and I see others do it too. On one hand, of course we do. It feels like we have to. You cannot live your life with a constant awareness of heightened desires that are unmet. Just as you can't go through your day constantly pining for a life you don't have, you have to live the life you do have. But I find that from time to time, God comes and actually stirs our longings and desires and awakens them. You see someone and think, what would life be like with her or him? Over dinner one night, someone tells you how much they love their job, and you think, maybe it's time for a change. I always did want to fill in the blank, be a writer, an architect. Why does God do this? Wouldn't it be better to let sleeping dogs lie? No. To bury the deep longings of our hearts is not a good thing. Doing so begins to shut our hearts down, and then we fall into that get-on-with-life mentality. For me, that means bearing down and working, getting things done. But my passion slowly fades away, and life recedes from me. I cannot bring to my work the zest I once did, so even my work suffers, because my heart is suffering. It's like a form of slow starvation. If your body doesn't get what it needs, you can run for a while without it, but slowly the erosion begins to manifest itself. You get tired, your muscles ache, or you start having headaches or a thousand other symptoms. You need nourishment. And the heart is like that. Thank God we cannot force it down forever. Hurting, it begins to insist on some attention. Now, we can either listen to those rumblings and let our hearts surface so that we bring them to God, or we can give in to some addiction. The starving heart won't be ignored forever. Some promise of life comes along and boom, we find ourselves in the kitchen closet taking down a quart of ice cream or cruising the internet for some intimacy. God knows the danger of ignoring our hearts, and so he reawakens desire. You see a photo in a magazine and you pause and you sigh. You see someone with a life that reminds you of the life you once thought you would live. You're channel surfing one night, and you see someone doing the very thing you always dreamed you would do, the runner breaking the tape, or the woman enjoying herself immensely as she teaches her cooking class. Sometimes all it takes is seeing someone enjoying themselves, doing anything, 
and your heart says, I want that too. God does this for our own good. He does it to reawaken desire, to stir our hearts up from the depths we sent them to. He does it so that we won't continue to kill our hearts and so that we don't fall prey to some substitute that looks like life but will become an addiction in short order. He sometimes does it so that we will seek the life we were meant to seek. Isn't this just what happens to the prodigal? He wakes one day to say, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Look at their lives, he says. And he is stirred to head for home, to seek life. I've given up on friendship several times in my life, made the subtle agreement to go on without it. But God came and stirred my desire through a scene from a movie, a story a colleague was telling, or an old photograph of a time when I had a good friend. It stirred me to go back and give friendship another try. Don't give up. I know God does this in marriage. A woman we know abandoned hope for intimacy with her husband years ago. It could be worse, she said to herself, and years went by. Then something awakened her desire, a romance she saw in a movie or the intimacy she witnessed in the marriage of some friends. The longing may have seemed like an unwelcome intruder. Maybe it would only cause more pain, or maybe she would do something stupid. But it became the force by which she sought counseling and invited her husband to join her. It opened a door back towards life. More often than not, this awakening of desire is an invitation from God to seek what we've given up as lost, an invitation to try again. This has been true in my marriage as well. It's so easy to just reach those plateaus where we decide this is good enough. Could be better, could be worse too. To get to the better will take work and risk and I'm fine with things the way they are. God comes along and says, don't give up. I'm stunned by this whole reawakening process, the willingness and what feels like such a risk for God to reawaken desire in me? I mean, geez, to feel again a desire I've long buried. Yikes! I might make a wrong move, come to the wrong conclusion, just as our friend might have decided that what she really needed was a different spouse. Something I read years ago by C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory has proven helpful to me time and time again and may rescue us in the very moment of awakened desire I'm describing. Lewis is trying to show us that what God uses to awaken desire is not necessarily what we long for. The things, quote, in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things are good images of what we desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. End quote. They are not what we are longing for. It's not that specific man or woman we desire, but what they point to, what is coming through them. They are a picture of what we long for. Like the girl in my diesel truck, it wasn't about her. God used her to awaken a longing 
to get to a long-buried part of my heart so they could heal me. When a desire is awakened by whatever soars, the thing to pray is, God, what do you have for me? I think many of us who want a holy life have chosen the way of killed desire because at the time it seems that there is no other way. And sometimes, in the moment, this may well be our only choice. Certainly, it is better to push away some longing if we know that yielding to it means giving way to temptation. But this is not the best way to holiness in the long run, for the starving heart will eventually seek some relief. But there are desires that we know cannot be met now. It may be too late to become a professional baseball player or a musician, too late to have a child. This is the real danger zone, because it seems like there is no other choice but to put away this part of your heart. But to send your heart into exile because your longings have no hope of being met is also to exile your heart from the love of God. And he would have your whole heart. It's hard to tell whether God is arousing some desire so that you may seek a new life or simply so that this part of your heart may be made whole in him. But whatever else may be the case, you have to begin by giving this part of your heart back to God. Above all else, your heart must find a safe home in him. Resting. I am so grateful I listened to God last week. Tomorrow, Wednesday, I fly to San Diego to speak at a conference. Two sessions, one in the afternoon and one in the evening. I get to bed late, then jump on an early morning flight on Thursday back to Colorado just in time to head into our four-day Wild at Heart retreat that we're doing here. I don't normally stack missions back-to-back like this. I've learned the hard way that it is not a good thing to do. But it happened. Last week, I saw these demands coming like a huge wave, swelling bigger and bigger as it approaches the shore. And so I prayed, Lord, what do I need to be prepared for next week? He told me to take Monday and Tuesday off. What gracious counsel. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I would have jumped into the normal routine, tried to get as much off my desk as I could before I left, and headed into these events exhausted. But I didn't blast out the door and charge into the day, thinking about all that needs to get done. Instead, I had a leisurely breakfast, read a magazine, took time to pray, It's warm today, a really wonderful break from all the snow we've been having, and I've been enjoying working outside, chipping away the ice from my driveway with a pickaxe. It's not work, not to me, it's fun. And rest, the rest is so good. I know I've disrupted a few people who did not take time for their hearts. I challenged their decision to take on the week just as I would have had I not asked God. I don't know if they asked for advance words or not, or heeded what they heard, but it's disrupting to walk with God and inviting, too. Sorting things out. What do I do with this? I've just left the table where the boys and I were having dinner tonight. Mom's at a Bible study. I heard that the weather was supposed to be good this weekend, and I asked the boys rather hopefully and feeling like a good and generous dad, who'd like to go bird hunting this weekend? In my heart, I wanted a joyful and grateful response. Wow, I do. No, no, take me. Instead, there was silence. A long 
silence as each of them sat awkwardly wondering, how do I say I don't want to go? One by one, they said something to the effect of, not really. I felt so dismissed. It was all I could do not to sulk. I know my boys are teenagers now. I know they're developing lives of their own. But still, I was hurt, disappointed, and something like lonely. I still am, as I come into my office to try and sort this out. I need to sort this out. Don't just let your internal world roll on unrecognized and unshepherded. Part of me wanted to let them know I was hurt and defensive right away. Fine. I'll ask one of the guys. I know they want to go, you little twerps. Think of all the young men out there who are dying for someone to take them somewhere. You ingrates just don't know what you're turning down. Okay, I know I'm hurt. And I'm wondering if what's really hurting me is losing my boys to growing up. Moms hit this moment, too, when their boys head off to college or simply reach that stage they only want to do guy stuff with dad. To be honest, I miss that stage. There was a time doing anything with dad was a really big treat. I'm going down to wash the car. Anybody want to come? I do. They'd yell in unison and race for the door. A trip to Home Depot was an adventure. A weekend camping might as well have been a safari to Mozambique. But not anymore. I know. I hope the day will come when they will realize what I've offered as a father. When a day spent with me sounds really good again. I think this is also part of growing up. You first hit that stage in your teens when your friends are far more interesting than your dad. Then you head off to college and there are all sorts of things going on that seem a lot more exciting than bird hunting with the old man. Girls will take their attention away too. Then it's work. I'm suddenly hearing the lines to Cats in the Cradle. What I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And I am ready to weep. But there comes another day when you begin to feel the need and the hunger for the presence of your father. For some guys, it comes as they get out of college and face real life and realize they need some counsel and some help. Or it might be a few years into marriage or at the birth of a child or maybe several years into work. The buddies are all moved away, the parties are over, and now you begin to realize you need a source of wisdom and strength and love that's been there all along, but you've never really appreciated it. This was my journey and the journey of many men I counsel, except for most of us, dad is no longer here to offer help. Then you really know what you missed. When will my boys realize this? I don't know. I only pray they do. And what will I do in the meantime? If I don't sort this out, I'll carry a resentment toward them, if only subtly. But they'll sense it, and it will hurt our relationship. I won't want to invite them next time. A gap will grow there. They'll see that Dad is acting way immature, and they won't want to talk about something else like this when it comes up. That awkwardness that creeps in between parents and their children This is how it starts, all because we won't sort out our internal issues for ourselves. This stuff festers down inside if we let it roll on unchallenged, unconsidered. Now the evening is wearing on. I am trying, with God's help, to shepherd my heart through this. Soon I'll say goodnight to my boys. In what mood? 
What is it that I need in this moment, God? I do know this. I know I need you to come and minister to me here. Jesus, come and meet me here in this disappointment and hurt that I'm feeling. I wanted my boys to be excited. I want them to see time with me as a highlight. It hurts to have my sons grow up and begin to pull away. It hurts to be dismissed for stuff like Xbox and movies and girlfriends. Meet me here. I also know this. I know I don't want to punish them for not choosing me. Jesus, help me to love them even when they turn me down. Help me to love them and value them even when they take up hobbies and interests quite different from mine. Help me to love them as they pull away. And now, at the end of all this journaling, God, my thoughts turn to you as my Father. I am embarrassed and pained to think how true all of what I've just penned could be said of me toward you. That is, how much have you offered of yourself, and I've chosen other things? I'm silenced, stopped. All I can say is, forgive me. You are more gracious and long-suffering than I can ever say. I want to be a better son. As I said at the start of this book, life will present us with hundreds of opportunities in a single week to take a look at our internal world, to walk with God there, to become more fully His. So don't let your internal life go unshepherded. New Beginnings Over dinner last night, Stacy announces, I think it's time we get a puppy. It is an awkward moment and a really vulnerable move on her part. The boys are silent, caught off guard. My first reaction inside is, that's all I need. You let yourself love something and you're just going to lose it in the end. I don't want to go through all that again. Thankfully, I don't say this out loud. She looks to me for some sign of a positive response. I nod and she tells us about what's been surfacing in her heart and the research she's been doing on the internet. Then the whopper. She shows us some pictures of puppies. I'm convinced God gave the world puppies to soften our hearts. As we look at photos of some Newfoundland and Bernese mountain puppies, my heart begins to drop its guard. If a puppy can't soften your heart, I don't know what will. Jesus? I ask in my heart. It's just a simple question, meaning, what do you think about this? What do you want me to say? What are your thoughts on the matter? Slowly but surely, I've been choosing this as my first approach to any issue. If I don't intentionally and quickly ask Jesus what he thinks, I'm stunned by how fast my heart can react to a conversation or an event. In a nanosecond, I can jump to conclusions, make agreements, dismiss people. We all do this, and then we just move on. But we can be dead wrong. We might be in a bad mood. We're certainly biased. And who knows what else is influencing us on any given day? Jesus? I find myself doing that a lot these days. It allows him to speak into the moment as life is happening. It gives God a chance to be part of the process rather than my looking to him later after the damage has been done. Jesus? It would be good. That's what I hear him say. It would be good. 
The litters Stacy found are going to be available in a couple of months. I'm watching my internal posture. Will I accept this? Will I be open to it? Will I allow my heart to be open? This is more than about just a puppy. It's about my yieldedness to God, and it's about hope. I don't want to live a defensive life, constantly steeling myself against the future, wary to trust, wary to believe. I want to be open to all that God has for me. I want to live the life he wants me to live. All of that's playing out right here, looking at pictures of puppies. This is where it all gets lived out in the moment. I believe Christianity is at its core a gospel of life. I believe great breakthrough and healing are available. I believe we can prevent the thief from ransacking our lives if we will do as our shepherd says. And when we can't seem to find the healing or the breakthrough, when the thief does manage to pillage, I believe ours is a gospel of resurrection. Whatever loss may come, that is not the end of the story. Jesus came that we may have life. It sounds like a puppy is in our future. That concludes our Walking with God podcast series, but it doesn't need to be the end of your journey into this topic. If you have not read the book Walking with God yet, we have barely scratched the surface here with the readings John did. There is so much more. I encourage you, get the book. Now, if you've done that and would still like to go a little deeper, we have a small group video series. And yes, it is for small groups, but it also can be used individually. And it's absolutely free for Ransomed Heart Tribe members. You can find out more details on our Ransomed Heart app or at the website, ransomedheart.com. We'll have an all new podcast next week. Hope you'll join us then. I'm Alan Arnold, and you are listening to the Ransomed Heart Podcast.